welcome to episode seven of the Real and Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Zach Curtis. On today's episode, we have investor Shelby Osborne. She's currently located in Fayetteville, North Carolina. She holds 41 rental properties. She also has a company called Five Pillars Realty, where she helps other investors learn how to invest in real estate by backing them with a proven team. I'll turn it over to Shelby to let her introduce herself. Uh, my name is Shelby Osborne, and I am the owner of Five Pillars Realty Group in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I was in the Army for six years before getting out to be a full-time investor and got my license because it makes sense, a lot of sense, um, in a lot of different ways. So yeah, and then um, Agent Shelby meets Investor Shelby, and since then, since I started in the beginning of 2018, it's been a whirlwind, and I do a lot of different investment strategies, not just one, so we can break down whatever you want, but I've done burrs, I've done like turnkey um, private money loans, um, like pretty much everything that I can. I haven't done a flip yet, but I am under contract to buy a flip and then flip. Yeah. So whatever you want to talk about and any of that, let's, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in the birth strategy, so we can get to that a little bit later on. Um, so for your properties, are you looking, I know you said you haven't done a flip yet. So most of your properties are turnkey, I would assume. No. So, I mean, I've definitely done turnkey and just for those who are listening, I to date have 41 rental units, 41 doors, um, several multifamilies. And then I have four Airbnb arbitrages that we don't own, but we sublease as Airbnbs. So I, I like, um, turnkey for sure, but burrs, you can't beat it because you get to recycle funds. It just makes so much sense. And your cash on cash return is usually really high. So yeah, I love, I love the burr strategy and I help my clients do a lot of burrs in Fayetteville. It's a great burr market. So for somebody who doesn't know what burr is, you kind of want to go in and, you know, sure. tell them that it stands for, or what it stands for, the acronym it stands for and how you use it. Yes. Okay. So burr is when you buy a property normally shitty in need of repair, and then you're going to go in and you're going to rehab it to increase the value of the property. And then you are going to rent it to a tenant because it's a long-term process. And then after that, you're going to refinance it to pull out all of the forced equity that you just put it in there with the good rehab that you just did to repeat the process. So again, that is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. And there are, I mean, the whole process from start to finish can be as quick as two months if you do delayed financing or you can spread it. Most people, I'm probably going too deep. But yeah, so that's the brew process. <laughs> uh, keep diving into it. I mean, the more that they can know about it, then the better. So like, what would, what would you think the best uh, letter of the acronym would be for the birth strategy? Like the easiest one to, to do? Well, it's, I mean, that's a tough question. I feel like the easiest is probably renting it once it's fixed up. But so you, you, you win or you lose on the buy. And I'm a firm believer in that. So if you buy right, you'll be okay with your strategy and you always need to have your exit strategy in mind. But if you overpay for a property, you're just screwing yourself from the beginning. But I'll give you a little example to help people who maybe aren't as familiar with the burr process. So hypothetically, and this is possible in my market, which is Fayetteville, North Carolina, you buy a property for $50,000, you rehab it by putting $25,000 into it. So now you're all in essentially at $75,000 it's worth now $100,000. And when you do the cash out refi, you can do 75% of loan to value. Therefore, you can pull out $75,000. And that rental property can rent for, you know, usually we get like, for that, we'll say $1,000, $1,000 a month. So those so, are good burr numbers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have you had any burrs that didn't hit the 75 after rehab value? Yes. So um, we call them in, in our world, which is the pillars world. We, we think that we're in the world. <laughs> but um, we call them clean burrs versus dirty burrs, where clean burrs when you can actually pull out everything that you put into it, whereas a dirty burr is where you leave some money in the deal. However, it's very important to understand that just because you leave money in the deal does not mean that it's a bad deal. Because if you still think about it, if you're getting a property that's worth $100,000 and you left five G's in the deal, you're still getting a cash flowing rental unit on a fixed 30 year note after the refi for five grand all in. And people really do get their panties in a bundle 
about leaving money in the deal, but literally that type of property for five G's, especially after you put 25 grand in rehab into it, because hypothetically you've just updated like new roof, new HVAC, new flooring, paint, all the things you are set for years to come and you are five grand deep. So it's, I mean, I'm totally fine with leaving a couple, leaving some money in the deal. Yeah. And like you said, if you rent something out for a thousand dollars and six, seven months after you pay the utilities and stuff, you'll make that five grand back easily. If the tenant stays in there, how, like, what do you, I guess not struggle with, but when it comes to financing the, the refinance, like, have you had any struggles with like finding lenders who would go through that process with you? No, because it's really important to have that locked down up front. And I tell that to my clients all the time. And by the way, all the things that I tell my clients all the time is because I have personally failed in that realm. So you're welcome for my lessons learned. But <laughs> the way that we do it now with our clients is that whenever a person, a client is buying a deal as a bird deal, before they even have that acquisition under contract, they've already been linked up with the lender who's going to do the refi. And that lender is linked in through the entire process to the extent of reviewing the CD or HUD or closing disclosure, whatever you want to call it, when they sign buying that first property just to make sure that everything is done properly so that way they can cash out to the fullest extent on the back end. So with your Burr properties, do you kind of want to walk us through how you do the, uh, like how you manage the contractors and that sure. process of, you know, what you, what you want done to the property to make sure that you're hitting your numbers? Yeah, so that is really important. And it's super important to have your team. As anyone's getting into real estate investing, they're going to tell you that. Like if you're on bigger pockets or whatever, they're always like, find your team, find your team. So <laughs> it is super important though. You need, um, and I will, I promise I will loop back to actually your question, although I actually may forget. But you'll keep me on track. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but from the very beginning, you have to have an agent who understands what you're talking about because if they don't understand what a burr is and if they don't understand that you're trying to flip a property, at the end of the day, they're salespeople. They're trying to help you buy a property so they can earn a commission. If they don't understand even the process, then how are they going to protect you from getting into something bad or help you fix problems that may occur down the road of like before they begin. But anyway, so it goes back. The reason why I bring up team is because a, our contractor is a part of our team. And at this point, I trust him so much that half, not half the time, a lot of the time, I don't even see, like, I don't manage the way that a lot of people do in regards to contractors, but that's because I built a relationship in the beginning. I did closely manage a lot more. And now i it's very comfortable. He understands my intent when I say, Hey, this is a burr or Hey, this is a flip for a client or whatever. Like, done. Like they know what needs to be done in order to, um, and also it's good because I usually give him a budget. He works really well on a budget. If I'm like, yo, we need to do this for $17,000. He'll make it work within that budget. But no, I don't closely manage. So but that's because they've been highly vetted. I've gone through shit contractors. I have. So do you use the same contractor? I would assume throughout all your burrs since you trust them so well. Yeah. So with our um, team, we have, three contractors who we work with the most. And uh, it's kind of divvied up between our agents at this point, but they all understand. So yes, we do use the same people for all the projects. So with your contractors, how do you go through the process of telling them like the materials, like you said, so you give them a budget of 17,000, like do you pick out the materials yourself? No, I'm so hands off. That's it's pro I'm probably not the right person to talk you through this just because I am so hands off with it. Like in the beginning, I was like, Hey, um, these are my color preferences. This is my style preference showed examples like texture. Obviously when you're doing a, uh, a rental property, you don't want to get the cheapest shit in there because when the tenants, a couple tenant turnovers, you're gonna have to go back and redo it. So it is really important to spend a little more money up front to tenant proof your properties in regards to like quality flooring. And like they even have paint that's like dent resistant, chip resistant, like, you know, all of those things. It is important to do that. But now with my contractor, literally I'm like burr, flip one or the other, and then budget. And within that, he understands intent enough to work. Yeah. And with the condo that I just bought and I know we were kind of talking about it earlier, like it's yeah. been updated for the most part. And I want to go back through and kind of tenant proof some things. 
Um, yeah. And the floors are laminate. And right now I'm just like, ah, should I, should I replace it with tile or should I just let it go? But like you said, like, I don't want to two tenants later then tear it up and then have to replace it. So. If it's already in there and it's fine, I wouldn't touch it. And I, I stand by that as well when I'm looking at properties for clients or for myself, like if it's not broke, don't fix it. And then also in regards to rental properties, you have to think, will this get me more rent? Usually the answer is no. And if the answer is no, then you don't want to go and just over improve the property to pass what the market rent you're going to get for the property anyway. Like it doesn't make sense. So kind of touch more on that. Like, let's say somebody wanted to, or I see a lot of investors like dump, you know, a bunch of money into a not, it's a nice looking property, but if the rents don't match up to that, like, do you think that they're doing that for more of like a, a resale value or like, what do you think that their strategy is on that? Well, if investors are doing it and they're not flipping the property, then um, I don't, I don't know why they're doing it. I don't think it's smart. And I, I have to rein my clients in as well because they will be like, Oh, like, well, we should do this. And we do that. I'm like, bro, it's fine. It will rent for exactly what we're planning for right now. Save your money. We'll use it on another deal. You know what I mean? And when it does break or when it is in need of, eventually it will get dated and eventually it will need rehab, but cool, do it then. Right. You know, <laughs> don't previously. And then same with like, I see it with granite countertops. I see it with, um, well, I guess countertops is the most, or even cabinetry in general, people just over improving. Like I don't put granite in my rental properties again though that and i don't even think it's again but understanding your market is key like i know in our market any property that's under at bare minimum one hundred fifty thousand dollars, it has no right to have granted in there it doesn't make sense so and in our market too as an investor whether you're turnkey or if you're doing a burr anything over 150 that's not going to make sense on the one percent rule anyway because our sweet spot in understanding your market understanding your sweet spot is really important our sweet spot is like 900 to 1100 maybe 850 to to 12 and so if you buy outside you're not going to meet the one percent rule and you're not going to cash flow so is that a rabbit hole <laughs> no uh, i think you kind of open up another question talk more about the one percent rule i think that that doesn't really get touched on a lot yeah so we follow the one percent rule hardcore around here and I know that in some markets, apparently you can do like the 2% rule, which is so cool. I would love that. Um, but yeah, so what that is, is that to keep math simple, if you buy a property for $100,000, your rent needs to be at least $1,000 in order for it to meet the 1% rule. So your rent needs to be 1% of the purchase price in order. It's just a rule of thumb. And it, and in our market, it does work, but in other markets, you just have to be careful because if taxes are really expensive or insurance is really expensive, it can cut into, maybe you can't do the 1% rule. Maybe you have to hit 1.5, maybe you have to hit two, but for us, it does work. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good explanation for it. And with me kind of knowing the Fayetteville area, I feel like the 1% is pretty easy to hit. Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. And like, especially if you have multis, you can do better than the 1% rule. So like you were talking about duplexes earlier before we started filming. And like one of my favorite deals is my first intentional investment property, which is a duplex. And I bought it for $75,000 and it rents for six twenty five dollars each side. So I pull in gross. What is that? $1,250? And my mortgage payment is like four twenty four. dollars It's like, those are good numbers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> um, what kind of, uh, well, let me ask this. How do you fund your deals? Like, is it just all money that you saved up and then saved up cash flow since you have 41 properties or? No, because that would take too long. I'm, a, I'm incredibly aggressive in my own pursuit of uh, rental property. So like my first intentional investment property was in November of 2017. And it's, you know, May, I guess, of 2019, I have 41 which I mean, it could be more, but like, I feel like that's a pretty aggressive rate. Um, and so if I were to save up to do 25% down on each purchase, I never would, I would have not very many at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I used a bunch of different techniques to acquire the properties. My very first, um, that one, the duplex I was just talking about, it was my first intentional investment, by the way, my first purchase ever was with a VA loan. So 0% down in Washington state as a primary residence, which I still have. Um, and it's insane what different markets will do because in Washington, holy shit, I bought that thing for 158 in 2013. It's worth like 
well, I've been paying attention since the coronavirus, but <laughs> pre-coronavirus, that shit was worth like 260 which is insanity. That is pretty good. Especially when uh, no money down on it. Yeah, it's, it's so. disgusting. But it was a condo with an HOA, so it cash flows like nothing impressive. But, I mean, whatever. Right. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, like we said before we were recording, my brother-in-law is in the army, and I keep trying to tell them like when you use your VA loan, like just buy an investment property and let's when talk into like more of your numbers on things. So I know you, you were talking about. Sorry, What's you up? asked me a question about financing. I didn't answer at all. Do oh, you want no, me go to ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I didn't know if you were kind <laughs> of just like didn't want to answer it, so I was gonna go on. <laughs> no, it's squirrel, squirrel. You know. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so my very first I bought with my VA loan in Washington, and then my second one, that duplex, at $75,000, I put 25% down like a normal investment property because I didn't know any better. And even though it's only $75,000 purchase, that shit still hurts, man. It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Especially at that time in my life. Um, and so after that, I was like, ooh, how am I going to do this otherwise? So I used my VA loan again, which I don't know if you know, but you can use it more than once um and i bought a quad my second time around and then after that i had gotten out of the military so i no longer had um paychecks every two weeks and so banks were like we're not lending to you you have no money because in real estate as an agent um you have to show two years of tax returns before they'll loan loan to you lend to you god yeah so um i was like oh, okay how am i gonna do this so private money my next three deals were 100 percent purchased and rehabbed with private money and along with the help of a disaster loan at some point, which I think you were going to ask me about a bad experience. So that's a fun one. But yeah, private money. And then after that, like being an agent, if you crush it, you can build money really fast. So after that, our next, we did 25% down on some turnkey multi. That was me and some partners. And then I used a line of credit. Lines of credit are cool, like really cool for burrs and flips. If you guys don't have lines of credit, get them awesome you want to talk more about the, how the line of credit works and like what the term is called uh, for the line of credit yes and the for those of you who doesn't know what a line of credit is because I'm not even sure everyone knows what that is it's basically like uh, the option to use X amount so it's kind of like a credit card in the sense of you are approved for a certain amount but with a credit card it's credit so like you swipe it you usually if you get cash advances they're really expensive but lines of credit you can just go and get like a cashier's check or a money order and it works as if it were cash and then you pay interest on the amount that you withdrew from that line and the rates are normally a lot better so like um credit cards can be like disgusting and not like hot mid to high teens Whereas like the line of credit that I have multiple with this bank, it's called First Citizens. Um, they're 8% interest only, which is really not bad at all. And I walked in there and was like, hey, I want lines of credit. And I walked out with $76,000 in lines of credit, which Thanks. in the market of Fayetteville is enough to do burrs. Yeah, like I kind of wanted to go a little deeper on that. So with the line of credits, you said you walked out with 76000 Like, did you have anything backing that, like equity or cash in the bank that you had? I don't remember where I was in that time, which really wasn't that long ago. I'm sure that I had money. Uh, again, being in real estate, if anyone is looking to go like balls to the wall as a real estate investor, highly recommend getting into real estate as an agent just because you have complete control over how much you make. If you hustle, you make a shit ton of money, unlike a fixed income, because then you can't just go out and sell more deals and make more money. Anyway, so yeah, I'm sure I had money in the bank and I also had... Um, I had banking with them. I had both my um, business and my personal accounts with them. Probably wasn't that much money though. You just have to make your banker love you and then they'll give you things. Right. So you keep kind of like beating around the bush. So uh, oh. go ahead and plug your five pillars real estate company and talk more about being an agent. Oh, I, that wasn't a, supposed to be a plug. It really wasn't. It's just great. I, I, know, I, no. I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, plug it away. Yeah. Like I want to know more about like, like how it works being an agent and an investor. Cause a lot of people are just one or the other. Very cool. It's very cool because it's very niche and 
most of the times when investors talk to agents, they literally have no idea what they're talking about, about anything, which is so frustrating. It's like one of the biggest frustrations as a real estate investor, I think, which is why they gravitate towards off-market deals and all these things is because they have an agent who cannot perform. Uh, so anyway, what we are doing is we're filling that gap in our market. There's no one else who is capitalized on the fact that Fayetteville is an amazing investor market. It is sick, nasty, good for investors. And so uh, what we've done basically is we've built a investor savvy real estate team. We have all of the resources that you need in order to invest. Like we have people nationwide from bigger pockets who just hit us up and like, Hey, I want to invest. What do I do? And it's like, blows my mind because they don't have to do anything. They're like, I need to build my team. And I'm like, no, you don't, man. I got literally everything that you need. Like you need lenders. We got your lenders. If you need inspectors, um, attorneys, insurance providers, like, and then after the fact, we have the contractor and the property management. Like it is so like, no, this is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. And then, um, yeah, it's just pretty cool. Cause it's so, not being so, done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, with like the way that you have that set up, are those all people that have come to you like wanting to work with you or are those people that you found yourselves? No, it's very natural. Well, there's a couple things. So one, it's all about providing value. So one of the things that I did when I was an individual agent before Pillars was like created was I was frustrated because I was an investor, of course. And I was like, why are there not any super cool meetups? Like I go to meetups and like everyone's in like a freaking business attire and right. talking like it felt like a sales pitch and everyone's like really uptight and I'm like yo man I just want some people to like drink a beer with and like collab and be like yo I learned this what did you learn let's build something cool and so in order to gain the momentum that we have now with people naturally reaching out to us is because of pints and properties it's a real estate investors meetup that I created back in summer of 2018 and like four people showed up the first one but our last couple we've had like 80 people show up, which is awesome. And it's literally like we bring in someone to educate on something cool, basically something that we want to learn about personally in our investment careers, I guess. And then after that, like everyone just like grabs a pint and you just talk and network. And it's cool because like our contractor comes, our insurance person comes. And so when people are like, yo, I don't need to know about this. I'm just like, yeah, go talk to that guy. And like, it's very... It really is beautiful. If you want to start one, let me know. Cause I actually made a checklist and I want it to go nationwide and it's, it's free. Like I don't want money, money off of it. I just want cool things to happen. Right. In the world. Yeah. And I kind of like that. If I would have, if I was wearing a suit and tie, would you turn me off when you turn the camera on? <laughs> I would have, but I would have been like, I have to sit right. straight. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, see like, that's like why I want to get into real estate and like talk more about this. Cause it's like, we were talking about earlier, like I don't want the whole suit and tie get up. Like I want to just have a conversation yeah. about real estate and like learn more. So yeah. Like once we get off this call, I definitely will uh, oh we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And especially with my sister living in Fayetteville, if I'm ever down there, we can meet up. So mm -hmm. um, I'm on the second Saturday of every month at three 30. Cause that's when Pines and Properties is. Oh, so it's not just once a year. It's like, Oh, no, no, no. It's every month. And oh, okay. cool. so it's a monthly meetup and we actually have had some really cool speakers. So like if you are on bigger pockets, like Matt Faircloth, um, the guy who's all about raising private capital and then Craig Kurlop, the author of house hacker, the house ha book on house hacking. And then the bigger pockets, real estate rookies hosts, um, Ashley and Felipe are our guests this month. So nice. Yeah. I'm on bigger pockets too. Uh, I don't really do much because like I said, I haven't really, got my hands in the deal or in the real estate thing yet. So you will, I know I will. I'm excited. <laughs> Let's go into your, your worst deal. Cause I know that you said something about that earlier about, uh, was it the disaster loan? <laughs> yeah. So the deal itself in theory is amazing <laughs> because it was a, it's an off market property. It was literally, um, driving for dollars essentially we saw a for rent sign in the yard that looked handwritten and really shitty so called and hate that guy hated being a landlord and so we're like yeah we'll buy it it's a 16 unit apartment complex by the way so it's you say small. six or 16 six. so it's like six mm -mm. it's okay. small um and that is my largest multi i have a six a five and then quads but that i don't know if you know there's a split it's four and under is residential five plus is commercial so it's a commercial yep. deal um, but yeah, so called, he's like, yeah, get rid of it. I hate it, whatever. And 
we used private money to buy the property and we had like all of our rehab quotes in line and then closed and it's not in a flood zone. I should note that it's not in a flood zone. And two weeks after closing, Hurricane Florence, I think it was Florence, whatever one was in 2018 came and wrecked our world, man. Six HVAC units gone in one freaking storm. And it's not in a flood zone. So uh, insurance is like, I don't know what you want me to do. You didn't get flood insurance. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so because <laughs> that's 30 grand. Right there, six HVAC units, five five G's a pop, like easy, thirty grand, and so that's a lot of money that you're not yeah. expecting to pay for in a rehab. But we applied for an SBA loan, a disaster loan, and actually ended up getting all of them covered. At and you didn't have to pay any payments for the first twelve months, and the interest rate is like disgustingly low, and it's spread out over a thirty year note. So, hey, we got six new HVAC units, and now we have flood insurance. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, my uh my second podcast was with my insurance agent which is actually a good friend of mine and he was saying cool. the same thing he was like investors they just want the cheapest deal possible because it helps their numbers but like you just said if a hurricane comes through like your sol <laughs> yeah yeah hurts but it's fine, yeah. it's fine. so with that <laughs> with that loan um like is there any stipulations on what you can use it for oh yeah they vet they vetted it pretty closely it wasn't just like oh a hurricane came through here's thirty thousand dollars it's like like they had someone come out and you had to like provide licensed general contractor quotes and all those things it wasn't too bad of a process it was relatively old school in the fact that they like mailed a lot of stuff and i was like this could be digitally signed but it was overall pretty good yeah um so with that property like what are the cash flows on it and uh, i know you said that you use private money so did you have yeah. to like, are you in at 50-50 with somebody or how are you paying back the private money loan? Well, that's also another funny, fun, fun. Uh, be careful who you partner with. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I'm actually in the process of buying out. One. It was three. It was three of us in that deal and it was 33% ownership. And I have all of this. Actually, it was about to be done, the buyout before coronavirus hit. And then I decided to hang on to my money just in case you don't really know what's going to happen right now. So I decided to wait to buy him out until it's over. But yeah, so that's a 33% partnership LLC. All of my LLCs have been even splits so far. I, I have a several, but they're always even. Um, the question, the question, cash flow. Okay. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, that was private money. And dude, by the way, different note on private money. Ask friends, family, people who already know you, like you, and trust you. Don't try to go and sell people on you who don't know you, like you, and trust you. Like literally my best private money people, and I've, I have several now, and um, my best ones are the people who are really close to me in my life, my sphere of influence, so they say, in the real estate world. Um, but anyway, so the point is we got 8% interest only, no points, anything for this loan, which is amazing. And it's on a five-year balloon with no prepayment penalties. So we can repay at any time. And we have not refinanced yet. Um, we will be refinancing, should be in June of this year, which is cool. But up until this point, I actually wrote this down earlier. So it brings in, it's, they rent for roughly 700 a door. So it's like 695, a couple are 695. Um, I think we have one six seventy five, but if you just round it, it's forty two hundred dollars of income. And then we have, of course, our property management, which we have. We okay. I go on so many sidebars, but with property management, guys, um, as soon as you have more than one property, start negotiating with your property manager because a lot of people in this world will take whatever they see and they think it's like gold. No, just ask for whatever you want. So like with us this was a while ago, I started negotiating for lower property management fees. It started out at 10, I'm down to seven. So <laughs> yeah, so we have, we pay 7% um, per unit that they manage for us. And then um, our, my interest only payments are roughly 1400 bucks. That's, it's all messy. You guys will see, it's not, it's never just clean. And maybe it is not in my world, but like real estate's a messy industry and you think that everything's going to be this one. No, it's not. It's like this wavy 
it's a crazy whatever. And then um, what other numbers do we have? Of course, taxes and insurance, since it was paid cash, it's not rolled into our mortgage payment. So we account for those as well. And insurances, both regular home insurance as well as um, flood insurance, as you guys know. <laughs> so after all of that considered, it brings in about $2,200 a month. And right now we are not, so people talk about this all the time. I think it's very interesting. They're like, okay, I'm going to plan for of course, the normal vacancies, repairs, capital expenditures, property management. Those are the ones that everyone plans for. So I love that. And I think when you're running your numbers, it's very important to com to account for those things. However, I always just take everything and build my reserves because once I hit my reserves, then I can keep whatever I want. So I think it's good when you're running numbers to plan for those things. And of course you want to hit whatever cash flow you want, but like people are like, well, how much do you cash flow? And I'm like, well, either everything or nothing because <laughs> I put everything I get into reserves because the end state of course is to live off of this money, but I'm not going to chip away like a hundred dollars. I'd rather just build my reserves and then keep it all later. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Uh, there was a few things that I want to go back to that you were saying there. So uh, <laughs> backtrack a couple paragraphs ago. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. So can you kind of go into more detail on how points work when you get private money loans? Sure. Yeah. So points is a common thing with hard money. You'll hear that. So usually it's like, they'll tell you it's like, you know, 12 and two. So it's like 12% and two points. And the points is usually a percentage of the loan amount. And granted, for the record, if people are listening, no one in real estate really knows anything. So this is what I know and believe to be true. However, I'm sure that someone out there is going to tell me I'm wrong whatever. Um, so points are the percent of the loan amount to which the lender charges as a fee to conduct that loan. So when I said that I got 8% interest only with no points, that's amazing. Cause if you do hard money, you're looking at 12% in interest only generally with two points. And so that's a huge difference. And then also generally they'll throw in prepayment penalties. Um, and so what that means is if you repay before the, the life of the loan has expired, then you will be charged X amount, um, whatever. So, and then also a balloon payment. I don't know if you want to. So that was with a five-year balloon. So that means that I have five years to do the finish the rehab to get, cause it's commercial. I need to show, I need to season the property to show that it's occupied, that the financials are in line and that it's cash flowing before I go back and I, I do a refi. And that's the difference between commercial or um, a lot of people who are doing burrs on the residential side don't know about delayed financing. Therefore they think that they have to have a seasoning period as well. That's another spinoff. Sorry. What are your questions? Answer uh, yeah, that answered it pretty good. So, Talk more about like how you budget for like your CapEx and your like mortgage and all that stuff. Like, do you have a set number? Like, okay, I'm going to do 30% for CapEx or. Oh, um, no. Well, it depends. <laughs> That's my answer for everything as well. It depends. <laughs> so generally the bigger pockets rule is that they do five, five, 10, 10. At least that's what Brandon Turner said on some YouTube video a long, long time ago. And that was the last time I paid attention. So that's 5% in vacancy, 5% on maintenance slash minor repairs, 10% on capital expenditures. So your major repairs and then 10% with property management. So if I'm doing a, and the reason why I say it depends is because for me, that's not set in stone. That's another thing people need to realize in this world. They get so caught up on like, I need to do these things. Well, so if the roof is new and the HVAC is new, why do you need to put aside 10% every month for your biggest capital expenditures? Like use some common sense. So for me, at least it depends on the property. Like if I'm doing a burr and I've like, it is beautiful and it is set. Like I don't need to do 10% in capital expenditures. I still am going to keep the 5% for vacancies and repairs just because repairs always have like you need it. Um, but the other ones are the capital expenditures is a variable to me. And then for me, it's 7% on the property management. So with your property management, uh, you just said 7%, but like, do you like give the property management, I guess, any stipulations per se, or like, do you just let them run yep. everything? So I let them run everything. Again, I've 
vetted and trust. And I have a very good relationship with the owner of the company. So it is, and it is very, uh, what's it called? When you mutually like, beneficial, because we give them so much business that, yeah, they should freaking take care of us because it's not only our own business, but it's also all of those clients who we send to them as well. Um, oh, yes. Sorry. Question. So yeah, I did give them a stipulation. I, I have like everything that I do is systemized, by the way. I never do the same thing twice because I learn the lesson once and I systemize it. So if you have ever questions, let me know. But because of that, I had my own personal criteria, which I would allow, like I, I personally was my property manager for my first 16 units. So I went through, I learned what I needed to do. I've screened tenants. I've done the whole nine yards. So when I transferred it over to them, I was like, here's my criteria. This is what I want. Do not call me unless it's over $400. If it's under $400, just do it. I don't, don't bother me. If it's over $400, yeah, I want to know. And that's it. Right. Um, <laughs> so how do you, <laughs> I mean, that's good information because I feel like you said earlier, a lot of people are just like, here's my properties, like call me or don't call me. So handling property managers, I feel like a lot of people look at them as they have the golden key to your handcuff. Like they own your property per se. And I like that you're like, no, this is my property. You're going to do what I want you to do kind of thing. Totally. And like we changed some rules too. Cause like their, their, their policy is like, I think it's like a $250 non-refundable pet fee, but I like to charge pet, pet rent instead. So yeah, little things like that. I made my own rules with it and you're absolutely right. The world is yours. This is your, like everything you can change anything you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> little motivation there. <laughs> um, so with, you just said that you had your first 16 units that you were the property manager on that. What were yeah. some like good and bad things that you liked about being a property manager and then hated about being a property manager? It wasn't that bad. Um, okay. So what I didn't like is I didn't like that there was no bad guy. So the good thing about when you leverage out property management is like, if you want something done, it's fine. You're the owner in the property management. It's like, Hey, we need to do this. And they're like, why I hate that. And be like, I'm so sorry. This is the owner's decision. They have a bad guy. That's cool. But when you're managing it yourself and you're like, the owner needs to do it. <laughs> so, uh, there's that. Um, also it is kind of awkward if, I mean, no one's ever happy tenants are never happy and that's not true. Sometimes they are, but like dealing with that is, can be annoying, but, um, overall it really wasn't bad. It's a relationship business. Everything is a relationship business. So if you go over and you like truly care and want to help and like generally when you take over a property, there's something that the previous owner did that they didn't like fix their problems, find out the issue, make a solution. And then they'll like you. It wasn't that bad. I feel like that's what a lot of people get scared of. And I'm sure you hear it all the time. It's like, you don't want phone calls at all hours of the night. And like, you don't want to be the bad guy, like you said, but for a, a bunch of people that I've talked to, they're like, it's not that bad. Like people paint it out to be such a worse picture than what it actually is. It's not bad. If you manage expectations, managing expectations is another one of those life things. People never get pissed if they're expecting what's to come, but they do get pissed if you change the rules or if you charge them X amount that you never told them up front. So I think if you're very clear and you like actually go over the lease and be like, these are the expectations you have to pay online or you have whatever, they're fine. It's just people get in trouble when they don't do that, when they're scared to go over the things that are requirements and then they ask for the requirements later. Yeah, I would be pissed too. You didn't fucking tell me how to do that. Um, the other thing is it does kind of suck when you do get called. Like I've had in one in my quad, one of my quads, the um, pipe burst. And that's a shit storm that you have to action immediately. So, and that's not fun, but overall it's fine. <laughs> did you use a, uh, like a system? Uh, like I know a lot of people use cozy or did you? I loved, I loved cozy. I used did cozy. <laughs> so did you use that for your leases as well? Or did you? No, I'm a real estate agent. <laughs> I have the North Carolina state leases and I uploaded them to our, we call it dot loop. It's our digital, it's our, our DocuSign and then route them for signatures and file. So. There you go. Um, I want to kind of talk about your, would you say four Airbnb or three? Yeah. Four? So we have 
are one, three are live and one is going live very, very shortly. But those aren't my only Airbnbs. Those are just the Airbnb arbitrages, but I do have other regular properties that I own that are Airbnbs. So we can talk about Airbnbs all you want. Yeah. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I wanted to bring it up because I talked to some investors from Nashville a couple of days ago and they had just closed on a property in Gatlinburg and yep. they were like kind of freaking out as to what to do. So we're, Walk us through one of your properties. Like, where's it at? Uh, like, how does the short-term rental process work? Like, the uh, going through the um, city ordinance. Like, how did you like the paperwork you had to fill out? There's no paperwork in Fayetteville. <laughs> really? It's like, yo, you want an Airbnb? Cool, stick it online. Um, it's it's not that simple. But okay, so the way that it works is. Should we do the arbitrage? I guess just the overall process from acquisition, from the, the point well, where you get the property, right? Let me no? stop you right here first. So, because okay. <laughs> I don't really know what it is either. What, like, explain the difference between a regular Airbnb and then an Airbnb ar arbitrage. Yes, arbitrage. Arbitrage, yes. yeah. <laughs> I butchered that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know it was like a fancy term, I think. But anyway, so, okay. A normal Airbnb, you own property, you... Do you, you know what an Airbnb is? It's a short-term short rental. Yeah, right. Okay. So that is a normal Airbnb. For an arbitrage, the difference is that we do not own those units. Those are rental units that are awesome. They're so cool. And they were supposed to be for long-term, but we saw that they were available and we're like, yo, these would be great as Airbnbs. And we went to the owner very upfront. That's always be upfront, always whatever. And we're like, Hey, we want to rent these for three years at a slightly discounted rate, which you do whatever you have to do to get the property. But it worked out for us. And then we told him, we're like, we are going to furnish them and then Airbnb them. And he was like, well, perfect. Have fun. Because there's a lot of arguments pro for it. A lot of landlords would be like, Oh, like, I don't like that. Well, no. Okay. A long-term tenant lives in the property every single day. They're the disgusting. People are nasty. They are screwing up that property. Whereas with an Airbnb, you're putting in very nice furniture and then people generally check in after three, drop their bags, go out to dinner, do whatever they have to do, crash and leave first thing the next morning. This, the wear and tear is not the same on the property. It is much more advantageous for the property's person purpose to be an Airbnb. So would but you yeah. uh, would you acquire more of those properties? I feel like the yeah. the turnover. Like, do you have any problems with the turnover? Like getting people in there to make sure that you hit your numbers? No. Uh, even during this COVID stuff, we are like booked, which is great. Airbnb is awesome, but it's also it's it's not saturated at all in Fayetteville. We're definitely getting in before it's madness around here. Um, but we. Uh, we, I also do nothing to get people in the property. I have leveraged that as well. We have a property manager specific for Airbnb. And we've also, God, the first time I did an Airbnb, I was like, I'm going to furnish it myself. It'll be so fun. It's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. So we built the system and now we, we leverage that out as well. So we have a person who is our Airbnb designer who comes in and gets it all ready. And then our property manager takes over. They change the locks. They put the the doorbell camera on there. They do all of their labeling, everything. And I can go into the details with that too, or not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah go into detail on it. Okay. So to get set up, I'm just going to hit on the, the key points, but a lot of things when you're getting set up for an Airbnb, you have to think about it's, you have to be ready for like three at a time, because if there's people back to back, you need like three sets of linens for the bed, three sets of towels, three sets of everything for whatever amount of people that you do have in that property. But the, Setup is relatively simple. Um, just make sure that you don't skimp. You don't want to skimp on furniture. You don't want to buy shit off Facebook Marketplace. You want to make sure that you have something cool in the property that will be a wow factor because people want to stay somewhere cool. So like my bungalow, I have a uh, bungalow that's like pretty close to downtown and it is awesome. It has a basketball hoop. It has a kegerator inside. They got a dartboard. I got a hammock out back. I had a trampoline, but then I just stole it in the night because I wanted it in my personal yard. But anyway, you get my point. <laughs> it has cornhole, like it has all the things. It needs that wow factor. So make sure you don't skimp. Then the other thing that um, after my Airbnb design person is all done, which we give her a budget and she's paid for. Also, by the way, lots of furniture companies will do 100% um, financing for a year. 
So if that is a great way to get your foot in the door, have that the largest expense taken care of, and then for that first year, that income, put it back towards the furniture and you'd be good to go. So that's what we did. We financed our furniture. Um, but yeah, so that's set up. And then moving to when the property manager comes and does their part, their piece is actually really important too. So they have like the fancy Yale locks on the door that like automatically change whenever the tenant turns over. They have like the doorbell that videos to make sure only the right amount of people are coming into the property and they're not throwing a huge party. They literally label everything. Like every light switch is like kitchen, dining room. Every cabinet is like utensils mixing bowls because people get pissed when they go and they can't find what they need. Um, they also replenish everything so that they do coffee and oatmeal and grits and breakfast bars and all of those things, toilet paper, paper towels. They resupply. They're the one who they get the, the lawn care taken care of. The maid is the one who comes in. They coordinate all of that. And they also do complete communication with booking. And the booking is crazy because it's not just on one site. It's not just Airbnb, it's VRBO and it's shortterm.com and it's all these other things. So in or they have a, a system that processes bookings from all these different locations to make sure you don't overbook. Um, yeah, I wanted you to kind of talk more about that because I think like ideally I haven't looked into it. I haven't run numbers or anything, but if I could buy a duplex on the beach and Airbnb one side and live in the other side, like full time, yep. I'd be set. I wouldn't have to pay for anything. My properties, yep. you know. Uh, manage my properties okay. from the beach kind of thing. So that would be, that's my uh, way out of Cincinnati. <laughs> Very cool. Um, let's go into your uh, best deal. Have you, have we talked about your best deal or is there a property? Well, you on? Um, I always, I always love that duplex because you can't find duplexes on that, this price range anymore. I bought it after 74 days on market for $75,000, which is insanity. And it rents for 625 each side. Like you, you can't beat that. That's amazing. Now duplexes are selling for like 130 and they're still renting for like 625 each side. So not as great these days. So I love that duplex. Um, the other one I do love my Broadfoot, the bungalow, the Airbnb, which is actually an Airbnb burr because it is a burr that nice. is an Airbnb. Um, and that was a, it was a first sale by owner that I found on Zillow and uh, man, I didn't write out the numbers for that one, but it's, it would have been a great long-term rental. I bought it. I mean, all in, I think I was at 110. that's purchase and rehab. Cause it needed some rehab. Um, and it'll, it's worth 175 now, which is nice. But as a long term, I think I probably could have pulled, it doesn't matter. So on my Airbnb months, my good months, which that's the thing with Airbnb, it fluctuates. You have to be prepared for that and you have to be okay with the fact that some months are going to be way better than others. Um, but on my good months, I bring in over two grand, like $2,400 in the month of December. Like this, this upcoming month, I'm supposed to bring in 21, which is cool because a long term, like, I probably could have rented it for a thousand, but it was renting for like nine twenty five before. So that's a huge difference in what you bring in. Granted, property management is a lot more expensive. My property management fees are twenty two point five percent because again we negotiated. He said twenty five, but now we have like a total of ten nine ten Airbnbs with him. So once we hit eleven, it'll drop to twenty, which is really nice. Yeah, there's a duplex that I just found in my area, and it's selling for. I think it was 42,000, but it needed some work and I've really been eyeing it, like thinking about pulling yeah. trigger on it. I don't know. Um, we can talk about that later, but what kind of areas do you invest in? Uh, like I said, I've been to Fayetteville before, so I know that is a lot of your properties, like just the military people coming through and like renting them out for a couple years and then moving on, or do you have more long-term? Yeah, we have, I mean, those would be considered long-term in this market. Cool. True. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of my tenants are military, which is actually really convenient during this COVID stuff because they're still getting paid, which means I'm still getting income, which is nice. Um, we primarily, and we do try to do, cause I mean, I was in the army for six years. A lot of my people in my company were prior service. So we understand like if they don't pay, I'm going to track down your first sergeant and I'm going to call him and beat his ass. You know what I mean? Right. So, <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. So let's transition into some closing questions here. And like with you being in the army, I think that it'd be really good to kind of know some of these things. So 
I made a post a couple of days ago and it was about leadership. I'm reading a book by Jocko Willink and we kind of talked about that before, but he's yeah. a, he's a 20 year Navy SEAL veteran and he talks about leadership. And I think that you could add into this pretty good because with you and your company being an agent and also an investor, like wearing multiple different hats, like what do you think that the most important part about leadership is to be a good leader? The biggest thing I think is listening and caring. So most leaders don't listen or care. And I think it's really important. I think that's why uh, Five Pillars has grown as fast as we have is because like truly value and listen and take into consideration other people's opinions. Granted, those have to be the right people. Um, God, so many people suck. I hate people, but (laughs) it sounds bad. But if you have the right people who all of your intentions and all of your goals and everything are in line, um, it should never be like, I'm the boss like ever. It is a collaborative effort and it is called a team for a reason. And the teamwork and um, caring about the people on your team is, I think, the most important thing of leadership. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I like what he says in there about just like you said, listening and, you know, not trying to be the boss. Like I feel like the best leaders are the ones who help the team out and not try to push the team to what, you know, up the chain of command, like what they want to do. What do you think something that, like you wish you knew was getting into real estate investing or being an agent or starting your company. That's so many different things. You already know I talk a lot. <laughs> Dive into it. <laughs> um, investor wise, you cannot fake the effort. You cannot substitute the hours that you need to put in to truly learn something. People try to do that all the time. They try to take shortcuts what you need to do is you need to listen to the podcast. You need to read the books. You need to run numbers. You need to get your reps in, in order to be good. And you will not understand your market. You will not understand the concepts until you personally have, I hate to say suffer, but until you felt what it feels like to put in that time and effort. And so just don't just do the work. And by the way, um, I have this list of people ask me all the time, which is why of course we have a list. I told you that earlier. Um, how do I, what do I need to do to be successful in real estate? So I have in action steps on what to do to be successful in real estate. It's broken into four chunks and it's, it's very simple one page. So if you want that as well, I will send it to you because, um, yeah, so you can't fake it. That's my point. So what about being an agent? Like what's something that you wish you would have known going into being a real estate agent? Have no fear because so many agents are really, they don't, they, they're not confident because they don't know anything, but no one knows anything. Your little bit of knowledge is more than your client. I promise just go in there and freaking own it in the sense of be a like the hustle the freaking hustle, which it may, is that contradict what I just said about investors about like, you have to do the legwork to know what you're talking about. It is different though with agents. Most of the time you're not working with investors. You don't need to know that much. You literally open a door and you're like, here's a house. Do you like it? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to buy it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, um, all it is with agents is it, it is your hustle. You can be so successful in my first year in real estate. I was the 2018 rookie of the year for Keller Williams for all of North and all of South Carolina, two States in Fayetteville where the average sales price is $155,000, like Raleigh, all these other big cities with like actual, whatever. The only reason is because fucking work woke up at four. I worked all, I was like, I will not fail. I will not fail. And with that, it's, it's, God, people are like, well, I don't know how, I don't know how either. What I did is I looked at the top five performers in my firm and I bugged the shit out of them. And I was like, Hey, can I learn from you? Hey, can I follow you around? Hey. And then you take the best things from each one of those people and you like, and then you, that's it. Yeah. I like that. And before we started recording, that's why I said, I want to start this podcast is like, I can listen and read as much as I want. But like, when I have a question, like, who do I ask? Do I ask the book? Like, no, it's not going to tell me like (laughs) specifically like what I want to know. So and like, that's why, like, I want people to get out of this podcast is like, if you don't get anything out of it, like try to pick something like that you don't know of and like try to learn it. So that's why I like that you're an agent, you own a business and you're an investor. So if you don't care anything about real estate, like how do you run a business? Like maybe Shelby can help you. So, um, <laughs> I love business building actually, that's my true passion and we're getting into consulting cause I love it so much. So like any type of business consulting or just real estate consulting. 
So we're starting, we're building, it's all about systems. Everything is a system. So we're building the system with specific to what our niche has become, which is investor savvy real estate agents with a little coin of like, do more deals with less, less clients. And that's truly what we do. We recycle, we teach them how to recycle their money and do multiple deals. So our investing or our consulting right now is teaching agents and teams on how to screen, run numbers, help investors, all of these things like that is it. However, my true passion is the actual business building side of it. And of course, I know the most about how to build a team within the real estate broker agent realm, but really anything. I love to go in and be like, all right, show me your business, complete truth. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, make this more efficient. This is a gap within your whatever. Like, I love that shit. Yeah. I think that kind of goes into my next question is, I think like what the most important information you've taken away from real estate. So I would assume that since you want to start this consulting firm, like, you know, like you said, the systems, like the key systems, and maybe that system might not be like set in stone for everybody else. But even if, like I said earlier, if you pick up on one system that you can kind of like spin it and make it your own. So like, what's something that you've taken away from real estate investing? I guess the most important information. From real estate investing? Or just real estate building businesses. The most important thing. Well, I'm all about leverage. I think that leverage, once you understand, you have to understand first, I think. So like I was an individual agent my first year. Um, I learned every bit of how to do a transaction. But in order to be successful, you cannot do everything. You have to let go of your strength, your weaknesses and double down on your strengths. That's another thing I hear people all the time. They're like, well, build up your weaknesses. I got to work on my weaknesses. No. No, because you're going to work really hard on your weaknesses to make them average where you could throw all of your efforts and energy into your strengths and be fantastic and then leverage out your weaknesses to someone who is naturally inclined towards that, who can excel in that realm. And so if you have someone over here who's excelling in this portion of your business for your business and you are doing what you're really good at, your growth is completely expedited. Whereas if you waste all this time trying to be average, mediocre on something you're bad at you're not going anywhere. So leverage is huge. Yeah. I like that. And I think that that ties back into my leadership question from earlier is like, you might be really good at selling and somebody else on your team might be really good at the underwriting process. So like you go out and sell and then bam, like you give them the work and then that builds your team up. That's exactly how our team is split up. It's, it's agents uh, and then it's admin and the admin are the ones who, after it goes under contract, they schedule all the appointments, they coordinate, they're the liaison between the lender, the attorney, all that stuff. They make sure that process is seamless while the agent is out there getting more deals. So it's everyone is focused on what they're good at and what they like. Right. So what do you think the next step is for your business? I know you just said something about consulting. Is that where you yeah. see yourself going or do you see yourself acquiring more properties? Oh, definitely. I'll never stop buying <laughs> properties. It's so fun. Um, I see myself working with very few clients. I have very few clients right now because I give all my leads to my agents. Um, I, I'm moving away from transactional real estate personally, but continuing to help my team grow into the well-oiled machine that will run without me. Um, absolutely still want to acquire properties, but my passion lately is the consulting business as well as spreading community. It's really is community because dude, your why changes. So like I started out and my why was like, I have to get out of the army. I have to buy back my freedom. I will not trade my time for freedom. So I need money. I need passive income. It was all money driven because I wanted time. Well, we can get to the point where like money isn't like when you're okay, I don't need that much money. When, when you're okay and money, you go through this whole crisis and you're like, what is the meaning of life? Like, why am I working so hard? What the fuck does it matter? And so <laughs> after that, uh, moved into your purpose is to be impactful in a positive way in the world. Like that is when you feel best is when you are working hard to help make the world a better place. Done a lot of reflecting on this. Uh, <laughs> so like with, it. <laughs> that, <laughs> with that, it, um, to me, it is the consulting because you can help people improve their business, which feels so good. And then also the community. It's Pints and Properties Nationwide and building this, this vibe, this helpful like value first, but like young hustlers, like total motivation. I think that that needs to be everywhere. 
and I'd like to help grow that everywhere. So, so with your why, I know that we didn't really dive into it. Uh, that was my next question, but let's dive into it more. So I really like like not doing something like you said for money, but obviously we all need money to live. So once you got yep. to that point in your life, like where you're like, you know, what, I'm good. You know, I built up a good business. Was it more of, okay, now it's time for me. Like I want to go do things that I want to do or like, how does that, how did that look like for you? It was very different than what I thought it was going to be. So when I was first getting out of the army and hustling every day, it was towards the idea of leaving it all behind and traveling the world. And literally, like you said, completely whatever Shelby wants, I'm going to freaking do it. But it, it, it's not like that, at least for me. It wasn't like that when I got to the point where I didn't need the money anymore. I, I love traveling and I'm definitely going to travel more this year than ever. And I still do travel a lot. I really do. And by the way, our team trip last year was to Costa Rica. The whole team went and it was baller. Anyway, um, but that's not enough because that's not fulfilling. Doing stuff for yourself and like going and travel, like it's very fun and definitely recommended. Obviously, it's awesome. But when you, for me personally, when I feel most fulfilled, it's when I've busted my ass to make change, to create progress. Like that is when I feel fulfilled. I hate the feeling of not having that purpose, but I'm also very high in conscientiousness. Those, I don't know if you know about the five big whatever. So I'm very like, you can Google it if you want. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> I'm big into those things. The big five and then like Myers-Briggs and the disc and all of that stuff. It's very fun. You're like, what the hell are you talking uh, yeah, about? I'm so lost. Like, <laughs> big five as in... Like, what is the big five? Uh, okay, so I just started getting into it because of Alex Felice, who I'm actually using his stuff right now. But it is openness, conscientiousness, narcissism. I'm pretty sure. I actually want to Google this now. Um, agreeableness and extroversion. So it's those, those are like the five factors that determine personality in regards to whoever developed the big five. And God, I'm probably screwing this up. Remember earlier, I told you I was going to screw something up. But anyway, um, conscientiousness is the one where you're like very self, like you have to be doing, so you have to be achieving, you have to be working like a workhorse kind of. I'm that, I'm that person, but also really open, open book, man. I would, I would almost told you like some some more stuff on there. I'll tell you after we're done recording. Cool. Yeah, when uh, I DM'd you the first time, Eden, you sent me back the video, I was like, damn, like, I want to get her on the podcast because she was like, whatever, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so do you read a lot or are you busy with all your, your businesses? No, dude, I'm a huge, you have to self-development. If you're, if you, if you are not self-developing, you are moving backwards with what you're doing. So, and this is, it's a, ah, so many different phases of my entrepreneurship. But when I started out, definitely Miracle Morning was what saved me. Uh, Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod and David Osborne, because it's all, I'm a huge morning person. You get up and you do like the silence, the affirmation, the visualization, all that stuff. Reading is a part of that. I love reading or listening to audio, audiobooks. I fell out of it. I was being really bad. But lately I've gotten back on it. Hardcore, feeling great. That's another thing you have to realize. It's a roller coaster. You're going to have times where you're feeling really productive. You're going to have slumps where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Wake up. You know? There you go. So would you recommend that book to everybody? <laughs> yeah. Miracle Morning is awesome. I love it. If Alex hears me, he's going to come in and be like, no, it's not. It is. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and that is the first book that I have on the action steps. So, which I'll send awesome. all of you guys. Yeah, I'll give it a, a read because somebody was yesterday. They, that was their book that they recommended was Miracle really? Morning. So I feel like yeah. if two people, two people. Two good, like, and the other people were good real estate investors too. And like, they gave a lot of good information. So you guys sold me on the book. <laughs> cool. Perfect. So Shelby, uh, where can somebody connect with you at, uh, on social media? Can they find you five pillar properties? Um, so my personal, everything is real estate with Shelby Osborne and my company is five pillars realty group. So if you search five pillars realty group 
on or five pillars royalty, probably just five pillars. Although <laughs> that's an Islamic thing, which I did not think about as I created that name. And I thought about changing it and then I was like, fuck it. So yeah, five pillars on Instagram, Facebook, um, bigger pockets, of course. Um, yeah, that's it so far. Maybe one day we'll have a YouTube. We should, but we don't. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'll make sure to link all that stuff in the description below for people to come check you out. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Shelby. Another good conversation from Shelby. I really like diving deep into her numbers on her burr properties, uh, learning more about her burr properties, how she runs her numbers on burr properties. I really like what she says about you win with the buy in burr properties, which is so true. If you enjoyed her conversation today, please make sure that you follow her at Real Estate with Shelby Osborne. Also, please check out her Five Pillars Realty Group company. I will link both of those handles in the description. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure that you follow us at The Real and Real Estate Show on Instagram. Also, please make sure that you like and subscribe to this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm looking to grow this podcast, and anybody who's interested in real estate, I would really appreciate you uh, referring them to your friends or you know, maybe we can learn more about real estate together and hopefully work together on deals in the future.